The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, trainings, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Dr. Don Lamont, Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Arizona. Dr. Lamont is the 2017 winner of the American College of Nutrition's Stanley Wallach Award, bestowed for significant contributions to the advancement of human understanding of nutrition and its role in cancer therapeutics. She also co-wrote with Glenn Sabin, N of One, One Man's Harvard-Documented Remission of Incurable Cancer Using Only Natural Methods. Her essay, How Not to Feed Your Cancer, appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Dr. Lamont, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you, it's good to be here. Well, it's going to be a quick conversation, but very interesting. I've, I've read the article, certainly in the magazine. I was looking at N of One, and I actually want to start with the book before we get to your essay. Tell us a little bit about Glenn's story and how it speaks to your research. So Glenn Sabin and I met in uh, about 2011, and uh, I had uh, heard about his case. He had written a blog post, a little blog post. And I was uh, uh, intrigued by his uh, uh, statement that he had been treating his own chronic lymphocytic leukemia at home, basically, but keeping in touch with his uh, Harvard and Johns Hopkins oncologists. And I called him up and said, you know, I I grilled him basically for about two hours. And I found out that he had all of his records. Uh, I eventually made him show me these records. uh, And I said to him in person one day, well, you're going to write a book about this. And he said, uh, uh, no, I don't like to write. Um, if we're going to write a book, uh, you're going to do the writing and I'll tell you my story. And basically that was what happened. We did that. And I participated in writing this book because I want, especially other doctors, patients, of course, and, and, and non-medical people, but doctors to start thinking about unexpected recoveries in cancer and why those might occur and to start researching those. So that was why I wrote the book. And um, uh, Glenn is a very proactive person. He will tell you that um, 
perhaps the uh, uh, regimen that he was on, which included a lot of uh, green tea and curcumin uh, and some uh, medicinal mushrooms, uh, eventually uh, pushed his leukemia back so that it's no longer detectable. I don't know if that's true, but I do think it's a question worth asking, and I'm I'm hoping that that book will uh, start that uh, uh, buzz, in the, especially in the medical community. Yeah, I think that's important for people to understand, that you are a researcher, you're a scientist, and you're not making, you're sort of observing as opposed to making fundamental claims. I, th I think that's fair to say, though you do have some strong advice that we're going to get into uh, that, that you write about in the essay. But that's fair, right? Is, uh, my, my approach to this is you're really looking at this as a scientist. Yes, I'm as a scientist in a minor way, but as a, as a clinician, as a physician, I treat patients. That's my major activity. And um, uh one of the things about uh, science and about cancer in particular is that there are many more questions than there are answers. And so that's where I like to live. I live in those questions and um, just because I'm forced to. And uh, a lot of times the patients can come up with the answers uh, themselves, as did Mr. Sabin. And uh, I think that's a really interesting place to be um, in the history of medicine. And uh, uh, so that's, uh, that's where I live uh, in those questions. Uh, and again, as a doctor, uh, even more than a scientist. So how lonely is it there? You know, it's it's lonely in terms of other oncologists, but there are more and more um, uh, finding their way in. Uh, I had I kind of crawled in under some barbed wire <laughs> and uh, uh, made my way into this rather fascinating, interesting space that's populated mostly by inquisitive patients who have, uh, you know, very little to lose and a lot to gain by figuring out what's uh, what might help them when, when doctors can't. A lot of times doctors can help a lot, and uh, one I, I would never be one to say, you know, ignore that route. That's important. But sometimes when doctors can't help or when their help isn't enough, uh, uh, patients uh, can figure out what's going on, and um, uh, that's where the N of one comes in. Uh, the N stands for the number of uh, subjects in a research trial. So if N equals one, that means there's only one subject in the research trial. And when you're a patient facing an, uh, a life-threatening illness, that's, that's you by, by default. You didn't ask to be there, but you are now an experiment of one and you owe it to yourself to uh, uh, consider taking on that role with, a, with, a, you know, with all your heart and uh, seeing what you can make of it. You call these uh, kinds of remission you know, win the lottery rare. That was a quote. And, and I, thinking of, of Steve Jobs, and what he did with his cancer, which seemed to just allow it, it just let him die way earlier than I, as I understand it, than he needed to. So, so because these are, you know, groups of one that we're talking about, how, how translatable is it to the general public? It's not at all. And that's why each patient, each person with, with something uh, to, to, that's not going well in terms of their health needs to be very careful not to try to follow what somebody else has done that might have worked for them. And, uh, uh, you know, the, in the ideal world, and what Mr. Sabin did was he, he, had, a, he had access to uh, uh, blood tests. His uh, local oncologist from Johns Hopkins let him come in and take a blood test once a week if he wanted to, and his disease was centered in the blood, so he could tell whether he was getting better or worse based on um, uh, uh, these blood tests. And so he was able to adjust his uh, uh, lifestyle, supplements, diet, uh, exercise uh, regimens, uh, very precisely based on 
his particular uh, situation. Now, not all uh, patients with cancer will will have uh, such an easy marker that uh, tells them their progress. So, so again, yes, every every case is very very different, and to try to follow, you know, nobody should go take curcumin. Uh, medicinal mushrooms and green tea instead of getting treated for their cancer that may have worked for Mr. Saban. Again, we're not we're not even sure of that, um, but that would be foolish. That would be like um, uh, you know picking somebody else's last week's winning lottery tickets and uh, uh, expecting to to do get the same results. So that and and people do something like that, I guess, when they they go on WebMD and they sort of diagnose themselves and then prescribe for themselves. So you're definitely saying see an oncologist. Absolutely. I mean, you want you want all the help you can get, and to to leave anything on the table is is uh, you know a mistake in, in you know in almost every case. And uh, so you definitely want uh, uh, everything going in your in your favor. Now that doesn't mean that uh, uh, you blindly do everything that someone in authority tells you to do. You ask questions, and uh, you know. Try to make it make sense for yourself, and if you need to, you get second and third opinions, and um, uh, uh, do some reading uh, on your own, and uh, uh, bring your questions to your oncologist. So let's just talk about getting second and third opinions, because you mentioned that in the essay, and you have you make this point, and I'd like you to elaborate on it. You make this point that get absolutely get a second opinion, and maybe like you said, a third opinion, but get it from somebody far away from where you got your first opinion. Yes, and that's uh, that's really important. And the reason is, is that there are politics in medicine. can't be helped. Uh, it's like any other uh, field where people are passionate and uh, uh, trying to, to make their point and, to in, and make their place in the world. So if you get a second opinion from uh, someone in the same practice or even in the same town, if they do have a different opinion, uh, from your first doctor, they may be a, a little bit hesitant to to go into that deeply um, uh, for political reasons. If the other doctor is much more powerful or is their boss or something like that. Um, and another uh, reason is, is that uh, doctors in a particular community tend to have practice standards that uh, uh, match. And so you're probably most likely your case was discussed in a group of doctors in that community, even outside of the same practice at a tumor board, and the con- a consensus was reached. So you're likely to get the same opinion if you stay in, in town. Um, you know, and I, I tell patients, if you can afford it, go as far away as you can, preferably to another state where it's less likely um, that people will be on the sta- same state medical boards, uh, uh, same go to the same conferences, et cetera. Uh, you can't avoid that completely, especially in a small uh, uh, specialty like oncology. Uh, oncologists will know other oncologists in other, other states, but uh, that does help. It was really interesting that, I mean, I when you say it, it seems obvious, but I never really thought about it before. I mean, my I, I question everything when it comes to philosophy, religion, spirituality, but someone puts on a white coat, <laughs> they can tell me anything. And I go, okay. <laughs> You know, I've, I'm just a, a, a an easy mark for someone wearing, you know, the a white coat, especially with a, a stethoscope around her neck. So, so that was really interesting to me. You, you also talk about well, you said, and you said it just a moment ago, but you say it in the essay. Every cancer is unique and constantly changing. So, if you have a, and you say 
I thought it was really funny, but very important. If you have a doctor who takes a one size fits all program, you say, run, you know, go find somebody else. But if cancer is so unique and constantly changing, how does, I mean, how do you, uh, as an oncologist, how do you address it at all? Well, that's one of the uh, reasons that cancer is such a difficult disease to treat and that we've, despite, uh, you know, 50 to 60 years of randomized large trials, randomized controlled trials, um, we haven't made a lot of headway. We've made some. And uh, especially in pediatric oncology, where, uh, you know, over 80 percent of uh, uh, cancers are cured in, in children, uh, even if they're advanced. Um, and in certain adult cancers, uh, testicular cancer, certain lymphomas, leukemias, um, and, and many others, uh, you know, if you're, if you're uh, uh, present to a doctor, you're, you're, you're likely to be cured. Overall, about 60% of uh, cancers are curable. Um, and uh, uh, the ones that aren't in late adulthood uh, tend to be uh, more slow growing in many cases, and um, uh, they do evolve over time. So one of the things that's newly coming um, uh, out of research, especially from uh, University of South Florida in Tampa, and also at, uh, uh, I believe, at Case Western Reserve or Cleveland Clinic, and I'm, I apologize to people at both those institutions. I, they're both in Cleveland, I believe, and I get them mixed up. Um, but uh, uh, new mathematical models are um, uh, showing that something called adaptive therapy, meaning changing the dose and rotating drugs and having long intermittent uh, uh, treatment, long treatment-free uh, 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 periods between uh, drug therapies may prolong life uh, very dramatically um, compared to giving large doses of uh, uh, one or two agents, and then uh, repeating that as often as the patient can bear it. So there are new models coming out that I think are very interesting. Um, they're un they're investigational, but um, uh, I think that will be one of the uh, 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 waves of the very near future in treating some of these conditions that have been uh, refractory to to our efforts so far. You know, I looked up and you know, getting ready for this conversation with you, I looked up on the internet. Uh, the American Cancer Society's website. And on their website, they say that since 1946, that they've invested $4.6 billion in cancer research. And I'm, I'm thinking, and yet here it is, and, and, and we haven't gotten rid of it. Like you said, I guess we've actually, obviously made some improvements in, in uh, pediatric uh, cancers and stuff like that. But but still, four over four and a half billion dollars in research. I mean, I mean, I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out: is this going to science? This money, or is it going to someone like Secretary Pruitt? And you know, people are just putting uh, soundproof phone phone booths in their offices. I mean, what? It just seems like an awful lot of money, and we're still wrestling with this thing. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So so I think, um, you know, I, I, I don't I can't speak specifically to the American Cancer Society. I don't know much about their research uh, uh, policies and how they distribute uh, their research monies. But, um, you know, the the answers for complex diseases like cancer are going to be crowdsourced, basically. So movements like the quantified self uh, movement, um, uh, uh, new kinds of research that use uh, very basic and low-cost drugs uh, and treatments um, uh, heavily, such as the adaptive uh, therapy model, those are where new advances are going to come. So they're not going to come from large, randomized, controlled trials. Um, those have been, you know, I think they've been given enough time to show that they're really not working very well in most cases of cancer. There are some exceptions, and and I don't want to uh, minimize the advances that have been made in that arena, but um, uh Cancer treatment in the future um, will come from a different place. So that's, that is interesting. So this, the quantified self, I mean, that's a whole movement, the quantified self movement, where people are constantly monitor, monitoring their vital signs and a million other things, I guess, with uh, technology, their cell phones, Fitbits, and, and all of that. So how does, how does that work? How do you see that working to, to help? help us understand this disease and how to stop it. So there are new um, tests, uh, blood tests that can measure um, circulating tumor cells, circulating cancer cells, cancer cells that are circulating in the blood. Um, we can quantify uh, the amount. Um, these are, you know, really in the early stages, but um, those kinds of blood tests, if we can get them down to a finger prick um, uh, status, like we can with the uh, uh, blood sugar that uh, diabetics will measure at home using a little glucometer, um, and we can measure those kinds of things really often and inexpensively. Those will help. Uh, those may help. Uh, uh, you know, there's some ideas that that will help us treat cancer. We have a problem in oncology in that uh, uh, we don't know how a patient's doing often for months at a time. So a patient comes to me, they've had a scan, like a PET scan. I don't know. And then I start the treatment. I don't know often if they're getting better for another three, four, six months when the insurance will let them have another PET scan. That's a long time to, uh, you know, if the treatment's not working, to, to continue um, uh, with something that's not working. There are other models where a patient uh, will have a nice response in some areas of the uh, tumor. In other words, the tumor may shrink in many areas of the body, but grow in one little place, like say the tumors will shrink in the bones and then just grow in the liver a little bit. And that's called a treatment failure. And the drug is withdrawn if the patient's in a drug trial uh, as a failure. And, uh, you know, that's just kind of, well, that's just kind of dumb. Um, the patient, uh, you know, is getting better in some ways, so we ought to figure out how then to continue that drug maybe and add a second drug that uh, will address uh, the disease in the liver rather than saying um, all is lost and uh, uh, taking the patient off the drug that was helping in some ways. So there are a lot of modeling issues in uh, cancer treatment right now that uh, uh, need to be looked at and are being looked at, but they're being looked at outside of the academy in many cases by, by patients and uh, hmm. patient families. And uh, I think that's a really interesting movement. And that's like what Glenn did. That's what Glenn did. Yeah. 
Uh, that's very interesting. I got an odd question I guess I want to ask you that popped into my head while you were talking. What do you think about, I mean, I, I, I admit up front, I watch way too much television. And, and there are all these commercials, you know, dealing with, with drugs you take if you're, on chemo, if you're you know, undergoing chemotherapy and all these other things. My sense of it is, I, I get the sense that this is not a good idea, that they're telling me all this stuff. It's just marketing. They're filling my head with new diseases and possible cures and go to the cancer centers of America or whatever the thing is called and don't go somewhere else, go here. Whatever, whatever it is, are they really helping or are they just causing people more anxiety and confusion? Well, I have a different uh, uh, take on that particular approach that's being used by drug companies. And the approach is, um, you know, I mean, first of all, let's let's tell tell people right now, your doctor has heard of these drugs. It's not as if they haven't heard of these drugs, Cialis and, and uh, all of that. Uh, they know about these drugs. But what the drug companies are taking advantage of is the new empowerment of patients to go in and say, this is what I want. And when patients go in and say, um, you know, uh, this is what I want, doctors have to listen. And the drug companies know that. I don't think patients know that. And I think, you know, I would say, if I could say one thing to patients, go in and tell your doctor what you want and tell them you want an answer to this question. For instance, a common one is, you know, how does my diet fit into uh, my cancer treatment? Is that important? And if you get an answer like, um, oh, well, uh, no, diet doesn't matter or everything in moderation. That gives you some information that your doctor really isn't clued in to, to uh, 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 the latest research in those topics. And you can either, you know, ask the doctor politely, of course, uh, you know, would you want to get educated on this, please, so that you can answer my question or you find someone else. You don't have to dump your doctor, but you have to go find someone else in addition to uh, uh, answer those questions for you. So I think that the drug companies are taking advantage of a new kind of patient empowerment. And I think patients can um, take that empowerment and uh, uh, do what they need to do with it. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I understand that, but I'm wondering, I mean, what do I, I, I watch the commercial and then I spit back the commercial. What do I know? I have no training in this. Uh, I just, it's just a curious thing, whether, whether it's the, the patient demands X and the doctor does it, but it's really only helping the pharmaceutical company. It's not actually helping the patient. Sure, sure. That's an interesting question. I don't think I have a great answer for that. Um, and frankly, it's not something that I worry about too much. Um, oh, okay. When my patients come in, um, they rarely um, are asking for drugs they've seen on TV, but they are asking for things that they've heard other patients uh, talk about on social media um, or that they've read in books. Uh, uh, you know, patients aren't dumb and they, they are looking everywhere for information. I don't think... Um, I don't know of any, uh, you know, I don't, I haven't encountered patients uh, overly relying on, on oh, okay. pharmaceutical companies really too much. That hasn't been my experience, but I do have patients come in saying, you know, my friend told me this, or I read this on, uh, you know, my listserv or on my Facebook yeah. site. Or I read N of one. And now I'm curious about, about the diet that he did. Let, we've, we're running out of time and I just want to see if I can get two questions in before we uh, have to close. One is in the essay, you talk about diet and fasting, and I wonder if you could just quickly address that. Sure. So um, one of the um, things that I will use with some cancer patients, not all, and this should be a personal decision and it should be based on the biology of your cancer. So this is something that you would want to discuss 
uh, deeply with your oncologist uh, because it's not suitable for, for all cancers or all patients. But that's what um, uh, animal studies suggest a very uh, potent strengthening of the effect of chemotherapy when it's combined with fasting. And by fasting, I mean water fasting, no calories for 24 hours before and 24 hours after uh, the chemotherapy dosing. So that's something that um, uh, I do in my clinic uh, for, uh, for quite a few patients. Um, it's well tolerated and it's uh, 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 difficult at first for some patients, uh, but then it becomes easier. The other beautiful thing about that is that it also protects normal cells against the uh, damages that can be um, caused by chemotherapy. So uh, you're getting two things. You're getting a, a potentiation, a strengthening of the anti-cancer effect. Cancer cells are tremendously weakened by fasting. And um, the normal cells are strengthened uh, or protected um, by the fasting. So you have a better outcome uh, and uh, uh, fewer side effects uh, in animal studies. Again, this is investigational in humans, um, but the early studies are quite promising and are showing that, uh, you know, with the right patient, it's uh, extremely safe. That's interesting. And, and this is my final question, but it leads right into it. it. It seems to me that if you live long enough, you're going to get cancer. So I don't know if that's really true, but it, it sort of, I, a lot of people, I think if you, cancer comes and many people gets a natural part of old age and we live longer. And so chances are we're going to get it. So I'm wondering if there's something that people can do, including fasting in a, now, you know, before there, there's any problem. If there's something we could do, a diet people should be following, maybe a fasting regimen just as a part of their regular, you know, every religious tradition has fasting as part of their regular practice. In Judaism, Monday and Thursday uh, were fast days, just in general. So uh, if there was, it's a long story, but if there was a tragedy or there's, you're trying to to, to avoid a tragedy, the, the whole community would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. So I was just curious, is there something you can offer us as a closing? Oh yeah, you should change this in your diet or you know, fast once a week or anything like that. I think there's two, this is a very, very large uh, conversation. In fact, it's a whole academic discipline, but um, it, uh, uh, there are two suggestions that I would make for people. And that's uh, uh, have an overnight fast of 13 hours. That means if you put your fork down at 6 p.m. and you finish dinner and stand up, don't have any calories again until 7 a.m. That's 13 hours. And that's not 12 hours, so uh, that's not enough. Uh, the studies that have been done on this show that uh, 12 hours uh, compared to 13 hours uh, uh, is uh, doesn't do the job. So there's something about fasting more than 12 hours and at 13 hours um, that changes our bodily uh, chemistry in ways that seem to uh, be beneficial for overall health. Animal studies, uh, and uh, for patients who've had cancer, uh, certain types of cancer, especially breast cancer, it's been shown to decrease the risk of recurrence. So I would say that that would be an important thing to do, um, even if you don't have cancer, just in general health. So get rid of that bedtime snack. Um, and uh, the second thing is that animal studies suggest that uh, calories, excess calories are pretty toxic. So one of the simplest ways to cut down on calories is to do an intermittent fast. Uh, I think the idea of Mondays and Thursdays is, is uh, pretty cool. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say do it every Monday and Thursday, but uh, perhaps once a month uh, 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 to once a week, uh, a 24-hour fast would be a, a very good idea for most people. 
you want to check with your own doctor and make sure you don't have some condition that would be rare, but uh, that would uh, uh, make this a, a problem for you. But um, uh, yes, a, a 24-hour fast uh, uh, once a week, once a month, uh, or somewhere in between would be a, a good idea for most people. Now, this would not include children. Children should not fast. So uh, in most cases, so uh, uh, this is this is for people who've reached their um, adult height. Okay, that's a great place to end. I was hoping you were going to tell me that uh, pizza binging would be a great way to avoid cancer, but I'll have to <laughs> I'll have to see if I could find that on the internet. I'm sure someone promotes that as an idea. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> pizza, yeah, pizza on Monday and Thursdays. Our guest today was Dr. Dawn Lemon. Her essay, "How Not to Feed Your Cancer." appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about her work at Oregonio, if I'm pronouncing that right, or because it's Oregon, or Oregon.io, the state, Oregon, Oregon.io.com. Dawn, thanks so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, training, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. Before we sign off, let me remind you that this year is the 20th anniversary of Spirituality and Health magazine. As part of our celebration, I'm leading an interspiritual tour of the Holy Land. This is part tour, part pilgrimage, as we engage in contemplative practices linked to the various sites we will visit, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Baha'i. For more information, please visit us at spiritualityhealth.com backslash holyland hyphen with hyphen Rami. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and to download the iTunes app for this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.